hello, and welcome to episode 124 of the new Ice City podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Mercagliano of the USA Today Network, and I am coming to you from my hotel room in Edmonton, where I can tell you I'm glad I'm inside because it is very cold outside. The weather's not quite as bad as it was the previous couple days in Calgary, where it snowed pretty heavy, especially on Monday night. It was pretty much trapped in my hotel for that night. All of the people who told me that Canada wouldn't be that cold in October obviously lied to me because it has been freezing. It's been like, I think when I checked my phone on the way to the airport this morning, it was four degrees Fahrenheit. So extremely cold, especially coming from New York, where I hear it's like 60 degrees right now. So this has been a harsh introduction to the winter, even though it's not winter yet. But we're diving right into the hustle bustle of the season. A lot of road games right off the bat for the Rangers. And we're, we're definitely having a lot of fun. People might knock some of these cities and it's definitely cold. Trust me, I would have a hard time dealing with this for the majority of the year. But a lot of really nice people, a lot of really good restaurants, a lot of beautiful scenery, a lot of cool stuff about it. Like I would not advocate against if you're a fan looking for a road trip to go along the team with to do the Western Canada swing. It's certainly unique. It certainly has its quirks, but it can be a fun one. And especially finishing up in Vancouver, which is one of my favorite NHL cities, uh, as I've told you guys in the past, that is going to be a nice city to get to next for the weekend. But right now we are in Edmonton and the team is off today. So it gives me a perfect opportunity to record this new podcast. Our guest is an old friend of ours, not just because he's probably a familiar, definitely writer for a lot of you guys and probably voice for some of you as well, but also because he was my predecessor in this very seat as the beat reporter. Now, the job has evolved a little bit. Back when he did the job, it was only for the Journal News, and now I have this sort of hybrid USA Today position where it's the Journal News and the Bergen Record and several other USA Today properties. But this is a guy who I certainly grew up reading and a guy who I'm very happy to have on the podcast this week, now living the nice, cushy retirement life, although he's been busy recently because he just had a new book come out, and that would be Rick Carpinello, for a long time was the Rangers beat writer for the Journal News and Loha.com, and more recently spent a couple of years at the end of his career with The Athletic. And he has a new book coming out, which I'm almost done with. I have been breezing through this thing in the last week or two. It's called The Franchise New York Rangers, A Curated History of the Blue Shirts. And it is very much curated. It is very much in that Rick Carpinello voice. A lot of really interesting historical nuggets from his many years. I believe he said it was 43 years of him covering the team. Also a lot of little anecdotes, a lot of funny behind the scenes stories, a lot of carp sarcasm and carp humor in there. So I've really been getting a kick out of reading it. And if you're a big Rangers fan, which I know most of you who are listening to this podcast are, I would highly, highly recommend it. It just came available this week. I know it's available on Amazon. I'm pretty sure in most places where you would buy a book. And so definitely want to plug that right off the top and mention that later on in the show, we're going to have a really fun 
conversation with Carp. We already recorded that and we went longer than we anticipated because there was so much stuff we wanted to talk about. And him and I go back a little bit and we were chopping it up. So definitely a good time there. And you'll hear that in just a little bit. Now, while a lot of that conversation with Carp is going to be focused on the Rangers' past and their history, let's get to the present-day Rangers because there's a lot going on right now. We're in the middle of this five-game road trip, which is the longest road trip of the season for the team. They're 2-0 and so far, a win in Seattle, a win in Calgary with three games to go. The next one will be against the Oilers here in Edmonton on Thursday night. But before we get into these last two wins, I want to pick off where we left off last week, which was right before the Rangers were about to host the Nashville Predators is when the last podcast came out. And that game, I think, was notable for a lot of reasons, none of them good. That was the first true dud of this new season on home ice. Rangers basically getting run out of their own building in that 4-1 to loss. Pretty much everything went wrong for the Rangers on that night. The forecheck was basically non-existent. That neutral zone trap that we've talked about so far was easily penetrated by the Predators. Very little sustained offensive pressure from the Rangers. Sloppy turnovers, some of which led directly to Predators' goals. They seemed to just lose every foot race, every puck battle, every situation where it was a 50-50 type of thing didn't go their way. Ultimately, Igor Shesterkin gets pulled after giving up the fourth goal of the game in the second period. And Certainly, he was not on top of his game that night, but the team was a mess in front of him. A woeful, woeful performance for the Rangers. But to their credit, I thought the players were very accountable about it after the game. Nobody was talking about it being early in the season. That's something you might hear a lot in a situation like that. Fourth game of the season. Well, you know, we got 78 more of these to go and we're still working through some things. They certainly did not want to entertain talk about adjusting to Peter Laviolette's system either. Chris Kreider specifically was asked that question and he shot it down right away. They did not want to accept any of those excuses. This was about desire and effort and urgency just as much, if not more, probably more, I would say, than the execution. And my sense is that they felt like they got away with too many of those let down performances like that in the past. And that, I believe, is why they seem so determined not to turn the page too quickly. They wanted this to fester. They wanted this one to sting for a little bit, and they wanted it to become a teaching moment. Last week, I believe in the question and answer segment at the end of the show, I was asked about some personalities in the locker room, and I talked a little bit about Jacob Truba evolving in his second year as captain, and I thought he really delivered a firm message in the locker room after that loss to Nashville. I'm going to read off the quote. There's a few of them that stood out to me, but but this one in particular. He said, we got outworked, we got outbattled, we got outcompeted, we got beat. The moral of the game is that we got beat. We didn't deserve to win that game. There aren't any excuses. So address it. We don't want a repeat of this thing. Interestingly, the next day, the Rangers did not have a practice 
They played that game on a Thursday. They were off technically as far as on the ice stuff is concerned on that Friday. And I know there's this prevailing sentiment. I, I hear it from fans all the time that players need to be punished in a situation like that. You guys didn't show up for this game. Well, you're going to have to skate extra bag skates or whatever it might be the next day at practice. But instead of doing that, instead of physically punishing the team, it sounds like they had a day of team meetings and a lot of video review and really honed in on the mistakes that were made. I think called out the plays where the effort wasn't up to par. Truba said they needed to address it. And I think that all those issues were addressed head on before they boarded that flight to Seattle. So a little bit of a different approach there. Then what happens? Well, the Rangers played their best game of the season so far and probably one of their best in recent seasons when they arrived in Seattle to play the Kraken on Saturday night. I have to say, I thought it was absolutely the right move. I had questioned it and written about whether or not he might consider making changes, meaning Peter Laviolette, the head coach, after that disappointing, as he called it, performance against the Predators last week. But I felt like that would be a panicky move. And I thought, again, it was absolutely the right move for him to keep the lineup intact. And as he said, give them a chance to respond. We had seen some encouraging signs from them in previous games. So to pull the plug because of one bad game would have felt like a knee-jerk kind of reaction. And I think Laviolette has been very calculated early on about not wanting to make those kind of knee-jerk reactions. Instead, he said, I'm throwing the same lineup out there. And I'm challenging you guys to do better. And they sure did that in a 4-1 win over the Kraken. Pretty much everybody played well, including Jonathan Quick, who got his first win with the Rangers. I think alleviated some of the concerns that I was hearing from you guys during the preseason. But the most dynamic group for sure that night was that line featuring Artemi Panarin, Philip Heedle, and Alexi Lafreniere. Panarin has been the Rangers' best player early in the season. Eight points now through the first six games, six-game point streak. He scored two goals that night in Seattle. He really seems to be playing at a high level. We talked about this last week, the motivation that he has and how I feel like he's really itching to bounce back and respond to the adversity and the playoff disappointment that he went through last season. Lafreniere scored in that game as well, also scored in Calgary. He's now up to three goals this season. Another guy who is quieting a lot of the preseason critics. And then Philip Heedle in Seattle had his first ever three-point game, three assists in that game. I believe all primary assists plus 11 shot attempts, a team high 11 shot attempts. I mean, the guy wasn't just passing. He was doing a very good job of passing, but he was also clearly hunting for his first goal of the season. It seems like that bothers him a little bit. It's it's funny. Me and some of the other reporters joke about this a little bit, including joking about it with Phil. But a lot of guys, you know, just because I think they don't want to be perceived as having a big ego or being me first guys. And I certainly don't think Heedle is that. I think Heedle very much is, is a team first kind of guy, but Heedle isn't shy about wanting to score. He takes a lot of pride in being a guy who can put the puck in the back of the net, even though he had a career high 22 goals last season. He felt like there was more in the tank. And I think it's bothering him a little bit that six games into the season, he still doesn't have one. And again, he was aggressively 
seeking his shot in that game on Seattle. But he still, even though he doesn't get the goal, has a really, really impressive night. I would say one of the best games I've seen him play in my five seasons on the beat all over the place. Absolutely a force in that game. His best game of the season by far. And and that line to me has been so fascinating to watch because they've had three or four really good games, two or three outstanding games, and then a couple of not so great ones. Definitely not good for them in that loss to the Predators. Everybody on the team pretty much had a bad night in that loss to the Predators, but that line in particular really seemed to be having a lot of trouble. And also, you can even look at the most recent game, this Tuesday game that they played in Calgary. Probably not the best overall night for that line. Lafreniere does get the goal against Calgary, but it happens on the power play. So it's been really interesting because we've seen not just glimpses, but full games worth of really, really impressive play from that line. But there's still some hiccups. There's still some growing pains. And again, I think it's encouraging that LaViolette is letting them work through that. I I spent a lot of time on Monday, which was a travel day for me, diving into the numbers and writing about how all the lines have been functioning so far this season. There's a lot of interesting nuggets in there, so I would encourage you guys, if you get a chance, if you haven't already, to go to loha.com slash sports slash rangers and check that one out. I put a lot of work into that one, and I thought it was really interesting just to not only see some of the statistics, but also talk about what we've been observing with these lines early on and how they've been used. And that, I think, for this Heedle line is especially interesting. And it makes sense. LaViolette is not the type of coach who wants all of his lines balanced with a little bit of offense, a little bit of defense, a little bit of physicality. He wants lines that have clearly defined roles. And what we're seeing is that Heat line, at least going into that Calgary game, in five games prior, had only had one defensive zone faceoff. All their other faceoffs came either in the neutral zone and a lot of them in the offensive zone. And that's calculated. That's because you look at that line, the facts are the facts. Those three aren't the strongest defenders. But what are those guys good at? Those are highly skilled players, really talented offensive players, playmakers who you got some passing in there for sure. When you talk about Panarin, you've got a shooter in Heedle. You've got a guy like Lafreniere who obviously racked up points at the junior level and became the number one overall pick as a result of it. So I think he's putting those guys in a good position to succeed. Now, he's not dismissing them from any defensive responsibility. He's still harping on that. And I think we've seen Panarin in particular working harder than maybe in the past defensively. I think Lafreniere has been a little bit better defensively than what we've seen in the past. Heedle's had some notable mistakes. I think he was in large part responsible for that one goal that Calgary scored on Tuesday night. Kind of got out of position, lost track of his man, and it ends up in the back of the Rangers' net. So there's still some growing pains there, and you want to shelter them. You don't want those three playing a whole lot of defense. But what you want is you want them out there in situations where they can attack, situations where they have the puck, and situations where they can produce goals. And they've been doing a pretty good job of that so far this season. On the other hand, you look at the fourth line, 
which has been Barclay, Gaudreau, Nick Benino, and Jimmy Vesey now for the past few games. And that line is largely being used in defensive situations. And that makes sense. That's what those three forwards are here to do for the most part. The other two lines, the Kreider, Zabanajad, Kako line, and the Cooley, Trocheck, Wheeler line, the splits there are more even because those are lines that can do a little bit of everything, especially that top line with Mika, Kreider, and Kako. So those lines, their zone starts are pretty evenly split. But the Panarin line is largely put out there in offensive situations, and the fourth line is largely put out there in defensive situations. And I think it makes a lot of sense. And again, we're, we've talked a bit about the Panarin line, but for those guys, I think that is going to be the best way to maximize what you get out of them. Of course, you want them all to be well-rounded players, but you also have to play to the strengths of your players. And Lafreniere, look at him the last few years, been a guy that's been moved around in the lineup, played a lot of third line minutes. A lot of us are wondering, was he going to be on the third line this season, maybe playing more of a checking role? But that's not what he's built for. That's not what got him here. What got him here is being a highly skilled point producer. And he's probably not going to be that to the level that he was as a junior player at the NHL level. I think we've had to recalibrate our expectations for him a little bit. But you still know that there's a lot of skill there. You still know that obviously there is enough talent to get him drafted number one overall. And I think it's time to find out, can he be a higher level producer than what we've seen if given the chance to flourish in an offensive role while playing with high level players like Panarin? And the same thing goes for Heedle. So I think it makes a lot of sense when you dissect the situational usage for each of those lines and how LaViolette is deploying them so far this season. Again, that line, outstanding in Seattle. Then the Rangers come off that win and didn't play nearly as well Tuesday night in Calgary. Still came away with a 3-1 to one win. So it was interesting after that game because some things absolutely went right for the Rangers in that game. Igor Shesterkin, even though he only had to make 23 saves, a lot of those were high-level saves. I thought he played one of his best games of the season in Calgary, made some really clutch saves to make sure that the momentum never really got tilted against the Rangers. Once they got it going in the second period, every time Calgary had a quality chance, Igor was there to stop it. Rangers also did some gritty things to help themselves win that game. 24 blocked shots. So... That was a positive. And the special teams, they absolutely won the special teams battle. That ultimately was the difference in that game. They get two power play goals plus another goal at four on four. The two power play goals, especially the one from Kreider. I mean, we've talked about this, I don't know how many times in the last few years, but that guy is just absolutely a master when it comes to working on those tips and deflections and redirects around the net. It just feels like there's nothing the goalie can do about it. And that... that deflection that he had off the pass from Panarin in that game against Calgary was absolutely a thing of beauty. So the Rangers get some power play goals and they go four for four on the penalty kill. So special teams ultimately made the difference in that game. But what was interesting in the locker room afterwards was it was not a super celebratory mood before the locker room opened for us reporters to go in there and start doing our interviews. You heard music, you heard guys laughing. Obviously they were enjoying the win, but as far as the message that was being delivered through those post-game interviews, 
a lot of the guys seem to feel like, yeah, you know, we're happy to get the two points, but that was not our best. Heedle was especially hard on himself, as I mentioned before. And he talked about, listen, the bar has been raised. The type of game that we played in Seattle, that is what we want to strive for every night. This game that they played in Calgary, they certainly were not at that same level. You look at the five-on-five play, and granted, a lot of penalties in this game. So it's not like there was a ton of five-on-five play in the game. But the Rangers didn't generate a whole lot of high-danger scoring chances. I believe it was only 12 shots on goal at five-on-five. And on the other hand, you look at Calgary, Calgary ends up with 11 high danger scoring chances. So the Rangers just seem to be on their heels too much. Peter Laviolette talked about this as well, not pressuring enough, not attacking enough, not playing with enough speed. The games that we've seen the Rangers play really well, it just seems like they're able to kick all of that stuff into another gear, the four check and the neutral zone trap and the offensive pressure and the rush opportunities. They just didn't have a whole lot of that going in the Calgary game. And you almost kind of like to hear that from them because the feeling in the locker room and the feeling from Laviolette after the game was that wasn't our best. We need to be better. So even in a win, they're still pushing themselves and still striving to be better. And I think that speaks to the culture that's being developed and the culture that Laviolette is trying to develop here of demanding more, not accepting any kind of mediocrity, not accepting certainly what happened last week against Nashville, but also saying, hey, we're happy we won in Calgary, but we need to be better in that. So we'll see. We'll see how they are on Thursday against the Oilers. The Oilers are banged up. They will not have the best player in the world, Connor McDavid. So that takes a little bit of the buzz, I think, away from this game. But it's a chance for the Rangers to keep stacking wins. Four and two through six games. Game number seven coming up on Thursday. All right. We're going to get to a lot more later on in the show, take some of your questions, probably dive into more specific players and that kind of thing. But right now, I do want to take the opportunity to chat with our old buddy, Rick Carpinello, hear about his new book, hear about a lot of his stories from 40 plus years of covering this team. And I think you guys are going to enjoy this one. So here's Carp. Now let's welcome into the show an old friend and a familiar voice for a lot of you Rangers fans out there who I know read this guy for many, many years, myself included. He was the beat writer for the Journal News for, you're going to have to remind me exactly how many years, but I know all the time that I was growing up, this was the guy that I was reading, also worked at The Athletic in recent years, and now has his new book out. And that is one of the main reasons I want to have him on and talk to him because I was just reading the book on the plane ride to Calgary. I've had my head buried in it really since the beginning of the season. Came out at a perfect time because I had my hockey juices flowing and I've been reading Rick Carpinello's book for the last couple of weeks and really enjoying it. And so, Rick, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Vin. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And it's always good talking to you, old colleague and uh my successor actually at the journal news, right? I was there. I was on the beat. Um, most of 43 years, 43. Yeah. Uh, I know. I knew it was 40. Yeah, well, th- that was including the athletic and, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, I was at the journal. I was at the journal news for just, just short of 40 and, uh, and then got to know you those last several years. And, uh, and then you took over my beat and I'm real proud of the job you've done. 
I, I appreciate that. And I have to say right off the top, I also very much appreciate how welcoming and helpful you were for me. When I first started, there were many reasons that you could have been like, I got no reason to help this kid. And uh, you, you weren't like that at all. You open, you welcome me with open arms. And I really do appreciate that. Uh, my pleasure, Vince. You're a good guy. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you're enjoying retirement. I, I won't. Should I ask about your handicap? No, but you can ask <laughs> if I'm playing a lot and I am. I know that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I know that. The handicap's supposed to go down when you play a lot, right? Well, uh, it, de not, it depends. It that's depends. Not it's not happening, but, it, well, but I'm enjoying it more than ever. Good. And so retired life is treating you well. I mean, yes. I, I, it looks like obviously you were busy writing this book, but for the yeah. most part, you've been able to get some downtime and enjoy yourself. Yeah, for sure. The book, the book took up uh, a lot of a lot of the previous year, uh, last year, and then uh, it was done pretty much done last November around this time, and uh, and we've been tweaking it and promoting it and doing all this, and and now we're on the book tour. So yeah, we're we're uh, we're you know right now I'm kind of other than the podcasts and the TV appearances, which are great. Um, I, I'm pretty much doing nothing it's great do you do you miss it i do oh. I, you know i certainly do i miss the players um i miss you know the games i don't miss running down to practice every day especially you know when you you landed in laguardia and then you have to shoot up to practice right away i don't miss that one bit i don't miss most of the trips um you don't miss calgary <laughs> I do miss Calgary. <laughs> snowing in October, huh? Yeah, yeah. I just I just drove by a golf course that was covered in snow. My gosh! So my gosh! Well, yep. Yeah, no, I. You know, there were a lot of great cities on that tour, as you know, and some of them are more difficult and more challenging. And uh, Calgary, when it snows, can be one of them. Yeah, yeah, but you know what? It's got some charm to it. There's a couple yep. restaurants I like here. There's some good Alberta beef. Is something that you got to get while you're here. So I'm definitely going to get a good meal tonight. But let's talk. Let, let's talk about you because, like I said, I've had my head buried in this book. I warned you before. I'm not totally done. I've gotten through the '94 Stanley Cup win, so a lot of the questions that are on my mind are coming from that era. But also, what stood out to me, and I think you had told me this, but reading it really cemented it in my mind, is that your first season on the beat was that 78-79 season when yeah. they went on that run to the cup final. So just, yeah. I mean, for a young guy getting a, a fresh start on a new beat, that must have been pretty cool for you. Yeah, that was that was a madhouse. And, uh, you know, I've told people that there are, there are teams that are better than them, there, that are better than that team was for sure. And there are teams that went to the Stanley Cup finals more unexpectedly for sure. Um but nobody, nobody went to the Stanley Cup final and enjoyed it more than that team and had more fun along the way than that team. And in fact, their partying and, and their happy-go-lucky ways nearly cost them and may have cost them the Stanley Cup that year. Um, you know, the story goes, the Rangers beat the Islanders and, and that was a crazy series in the semifinals. Uh, and the Islanders would then go on to win 19 consecutive playoff series and four consecutive Stanley Cups. They wouldn't lose again for five years. Um, so they beat the Islanders in six, and the Canadians had to go seven against the Bruins. The Canadians were able to get game one, which was scheduled for Saturday night, moved to Sunday afternoon, and the Rangers were livid over that. They thought the league was giving them special treatment as 
as was the case, you know, in most cases, they were the they were about to be the four time Stanley Cup champions. And uh, so they they switched the game to game one to Sunday afternoon, which gave the Rangers an off night in Montreal and then an off day in Montreal. And most of the Rangers will tell you they partied hard in, in that. And that's a good city to be in when you're a young man. Oh, yeah. And and when so they had they partied hard and uh, Phil Esposito was trying to get Fred Shiro to move the team out of Montreal for those two days to get to a hotel far away. And they'd stayed in Montreal and uh, they think that may have cost them the series, although they did take a two nothing lead in game two also. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. they got stopped. Then they got stopped, and uh, the Canadians were the Canadians after that. And so the Rangers Stanley Cup turned out to be the Islander series. One of the things that I love about the book, aside from uh, you know great history in there, I feel like I'm learning stuff, especially stuff that happened before I was born. I was born in the '80s, so obviously I wasn't watching that '79 Stop Cup it. final. Stop that! <laughs> but uh, so a lot of history. I definitely feel like I'm learning stuff in there, but it's also got that carp voice to it. A lot of really funny anecdotes in there, especially from those late '70s and early '80s teams. Where I mean, it stands out to me. Number one, how wild those teams were, and some of the yeah. stuff that went on behind the scenes and in the locker yeah. room that you touch on. I don't want to spill too many of the beans, but there's definitely some funny stuff in there, but also the level of access as far as, you know, you talk about Herb Brooks in the book and you guys going out to dinner or hanging out in his office after practice and just kind of just BSing with the head coach of the New York Rangers in that way. And, you know, you know, the type of access we have now, we talk to the coach every day, but it's very structured podium, that kind of a setting. So, I mean, for you, I imagine it must've been really cool to to get to know the coach and the players that you were covering in that way and see the warts and everything for these guys. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, especially, you know, you mentioned her, but the guy's already a legend because of what he did in 1980. And, you know, all of a sudden he's like your buddy. Um, he, he treats you that way anyway. And he was an amazing guy, but he's, he left his family home in Minnesota and, and rented a small nothing of an apartment in Harrison, New York, which was near where I was living. And would take the train to the garden and uh, take his little car to, to Rye Playland where they practiced. It was a five-minute ride. And that was his life until he, went, you know, until he got back home in the offseason. So, um, so he enjoyed the company too. But it was fascinating being around him and talking hockey with him and talking anything with him really with the, with the time we had. Access, as you know, was a completely different animal back then. Um, you know, there were, what, maybe five reporters with the team on a daily basis. And that was it. I mean, there wasn't like, there weren't TV cameras or, or radio or certainly not podcasts or, and uh, social media. So it was um, it, it was a different time. There weren't post-game press conferences. You know, the coach would go into this little room across the hall from, from the locker room. Anybody who came in would talk to him, and that would be it. You know, you didn't have to be at any specific time. You could you could come in before or after interviewing the players, and he'd be in there. Um, but you know, it's kind of sad too that I've developed so many relationships over the over my career with you know a guy like Brian Leach who did the forward for me, and that's this is the second book f- for which he's done it for me. Um, and you know, you take a guy like Henrik Lundqvist, who you covered, 
And the guy's great, right? He's a, he's a professional. He gets it. He's uh, so cooperative and so quotable. But you, you never get a chance to re- develop a relationship with a guy like that. You know, even the guys on today's team, Mika Zibanejad and Panera and Kreider, they're great guys. But you don't get the time with them that we used to get with the players of the of the 80s and 90s, even even early 2000s. It just has it just isn't that way anymore because of the number, the sheer number of media, because these guys are kind of trotted out to their locker, um, and everybody gets them at once. And sometimes after practice, you can get a guy here or there, right? But you don't really get to know them. They don't really get to know you. Uh, it's a different animal. It's kind of a shame, actually. It is. It is. I will say that, I mean, the COVID world was terrible. We understood why, but the, whether it was the Zooms or then even that one season where it was all podium in the group settings, that was that was miserable as far as you know our jobs are concerned. And as far yeah. as the type of content that we're able to deliver to the fans, because ultimately, the more access that you have, the better the stories are going to be. But I will say that the last couple of years, especially as you mentioned, the practice days to me, as far as access, are more valuable than the game days yeah. because yeah. that is when there's only a few of us there and you go right. into the locker room and you sit with a guy. I mean, pretty much every practice, at least one guy I sit with one-on-one. And right. sometimes it's catching up about family or whatever, but a lot of times it's diving deep on a topic I want to write for a story. So that has been nice, but it's not to the level where I'm reading you know, these stories of you and Herb Brooks at right. an Italian restaurant in Harrison together. Right. It, it's not to that level which is pretty cool. Right. Uh, one of the one of the if I can just interrupt for a second. Yeah, one, of the, yeah. one of the one of the greatest greatest things about the beat when I was on until uh I think the Tortorella era um the guys used to work on their sticks outside the locker room and they had this big carpentry bench with saws and blow torches and stuff and and they all hey, spray paint they'd all work on their sticks or most of them would like a guy like Messier might send you know, equipment guy out to do his. But most of the guys would come out and work on their sticks. We were allowed in that hallway an hour or two hours before the game. Mm. And we would just hang out with the guys. And you could talk to them. And, and it was mostly not interviewing guys. Of course, if you had a question to ask for a story, they'd be there and they'd be willing. But that was the quality time you, that you really got with those guys. And what. <laughs> One other thing, and you know how great a guy Adam Graves is and what I think of him. He uh, once got spray paint while he was doing his stick. He got spray paint on my shirt, and he came running over apologizing and offering to buy me a new shirt. (laughs) He was such a nice kid. He was such a young man at that time, and uh, just so typical of Adam. (laughs) You know, I've told this story before, but one of my early assignments at the Journal News, I think it was my first year on the beat, I think whether it was something, I don't know if you, you didn't want to go to it or you were off for whatever reason or whatever, but the Rangers were running some charity event in Westchester and they sent me to go cover it. And Adam Graves was there as kind of like the ambassador. He was obviously retired at this point. And I met him briefly. I interviewed him. I went back to write my story. I was going out to dinner with a buddy that night. And as I'm getting ready to go out to dinner, my phone rings and it's a number I don't recognize. And it was Adam Graves calling to make sure that I had everything I needed for my story, <laughs> which just absolutely blew my mind yeah, because yeah. I grew up watching him and, and looking up yeah. to him in that way and yeah. then met him. And he was so humble and so nice. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's just a little Adam Graves aside. This uh, is about my stories. But that was that was my introduction to Adam Graves. Yeah, he's he's nice person i ever met like i'm not even just saying that nicest athlete he's the nicest person i've ever met yeah. and uh i'll tell you another quick story about him so there was a there was a writer and i i won't mention her name 
uh, here, but uh, she worked for Star Ledger. And um, so, she, so she grew up a Devils fan. And she said she hated Adam Graves when she was a Devils <laughs> fan. Hated him, hated him. And then she got the Rangers. Then she got on the beat with the Rangers uh, for the newspaper. And she met Adam. And she said to herself, my God, I hated this guy. I'm going straight to hell. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that's right. That's yeah, that's, exactly right. You can't hate Adam. No, that's good. That's very yeah, good. Yeah. Let me, let me. You know, another character who stood out to me. Getting back to the book now, before we keep getting sidetracked. <laughs> but another character who stood out to me in the book that I I knew that he worked with the Rangers, but again, I was either not bored or very young and didn't realize all the the foundation that he laid for that team that ultimately won the cup is Craig Patrick, who yeah. everybody who's seen miracle remembers him as the assistant coach for Herb Brooks, but he came and ended up being the general manager for the Rangers. And you go through it in the book, some of the draft picks that he made yeah. and the moves that he made and how that really did lay the foundation for that team that won the cup. There's no doubt. I mean, start right off with the two guys who were first and second in the Conn Smythe trophy vote, Rick, Richter and Leach or Leach and Richter. And then, you know, you go down the line to, to the guys that they traded away to win that cup. And, you know, Thomas Sandstrom and, and Tony Granado. And it goes, you know, it goes really deep. The guy, uh, Ulf Dahlen, who they traded for Mike Gartner, it goes pretty deep. Um, his drafts were pretty incredible. And you, you think about how few actual real good NHL players come out of the draft each year. But it seemed like every year he hit on a really good player. Uh, I won't say he got any superstars, but he got some really good players every year. And, and he, then he did get the superstars in Leach and Richter, of course. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, he, but he got guys that, that Neil Smith and Phil Esposito traded away that brought pieces that turned out to be uh, the foundation of the, of the cup team. Yeah, that, that that stood out to me while reading the book. I really liked how you went through all those different moves, and it shows you all these names that you recognize are names that turned into useful pieces via trade. A lot of them were, were because he brought them there. Yeah. I also found it interesting that you wrote that Alexei Kovalev was the most talented, I believe was the way you phrased it, the Skilled. player you, you ever covered. Skilled yeah. player. Yeah. That's interesting because I'd be curious to get your thoughts on you know, whether you're talking about most skilled or whether you're talking about best overall, it sounds like he's not obviously the best overall that you yeah. covered, but you wrote that he was the most skilled player you ever covered. No question. And, you know, he had he had everything you could possibly have. Hands, you know, the hands were amazing. Magician hands. Uh, strong, fast, pretty, you know, pretty smart on the ice too, but he never, or it took him a long time to figure out that it's not keep away. And because he, I don't know how much you saw of him, if, if at all, but he would play keep away with the puck. He would, he'd get it and he wouldn't give it up. And they were, teammates were open and it didn't matter. <laughs> you know, Alex wanted the puck. Uh, he was really good with it and, and he did a, a lot of good things with it, but he never got rid of it. And sometimes the, you know, his coaches or his G or GM would say, uh, Alex, the, the uh, idea of the game is to score more goals than the other team, not to hold the puck longer than the other. Uh, but, but he could do anything. And, you know, I also wrote in the book too, about some of the other amazing things he did in his life. Like I told a story about Sal Messina, the old radio commentator uh, was at a 
team uh, golf outing, and he had just bought a new driver. And Alex was playing with him or in the next group, and they met on the tee. And Kovalev said, oh, can I try your driver? And Asal said, it's a right-handed driver, Alex. You're left-handed. And he handed him the driver, and Alex hit the ball 300 yards down the middle, right-handed. <laughs> and, like, that's the kind of thing. You know, he played the saxophone. He learned English. He, you know, he's a, he was an airplane pilot. Uh, he was just an amazing mind. But his hands were so special. Um, the way he, the way he, could, the things he could do with a puck, he could juggle it like nobody else. I think he was more skilled than Gretzky and Leach and those guys. And, and Leach agrees. Um, I, I never asked Gretz, but, <laughs> but, but Alex was more flat out skilled than any player I've ever seen. That, that's interesting. That that stood out to me when I was reading the book. Now, obviously, we're talking about best players you ever covered. Gretzky, you know, as far as, you know, being a hockey legend and all that, I'm sure he would have to be the answer there. But I was thinking about it more in terms of value to the Rangers, like the the guy who over the course of his career made the biggest impact on a night to night, year to year basis. Does anybody stand out to you or is that too hard of a question as the the most valuable Ranger? Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, if you want to say who's the best homegrown Ranger or he was the best player who spent most of his career as a ranger. You know, I think you have to say Brian. It's mm-hmm. Brian Leach. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I'm a little prejudiced there, <laughs> obviously. But, you know, on, on the other the other part of that question is who was the most valuable guy, who did the most for the franchise, and, that, and that's Messier, you know. And I hate to keep going back to 93-94, 93-94. And, you know, it is the only cup in the last 83 years. But Messier changed the franchise. And, uh, you know, the other thing I bring up in, in the book, too, and, and I do, I kind of uh, talk about it briefly. What happens if they don't win that cup in 94? You know, how is Messier seen? You know, is he, it, was he, a, you know, he got the previous coach fired. Is that his legacy? He got that coach fired and never won. Um, how is how is Adam Graves seen? You know, is his number up in the rafters? Probably not. You know, it might be, but I think Leach and Richter's number, Leach's number is up there no, no matter no matter what. But is Richter's? Probably. But, you know, it, it changes the whole narrative of the franchise if they don't win, if they lose game seven or game six to the Devils or if they lose game seven to Vancouver. Uh, but, yeah, you know, Messier is, they call him the Messiah. And, for good reason. That was his cup. Um, they don't win that cup without him. It's. I, I just read that part in the book, and it really the, the questions you posed there. It, it really is fascinating because there were so many moments where it could have went the other way. The, yeah. the two the two game sevens, the double overtime, the game yeah. six against the Devils as well. Yeah. There were so many moments where it could have went the other way. I have to ask you. Where I know we're harping on ninety four a lot. This is the last question I'll ask you, but. All the characters, Mike Keenan, and you, you know, you go into all the turmoil behind the scenes, and Mark Messier and the role that he played as art, you know, having issues with multiple coaches. And even the story that, that really made me kind of chuckle to myself was you wrote about going to the after party when the Rangers did win the cup oh. and the bouncer wouldn't let you in because, yeah. <laughs> because he didn't know who the heck you were. And then yeah. Messier pulled up in the limo, puts yeah. his arm around you and you walk into the after party. Yeah. Mark Messier. I'm sure that was a pretty cool moment for you. I guess we should. Uh, touch uh, up on, huh? it, that is, I, I have a photograph of that. So that's really cool to have. Um, yeah. And, and 
talk about madhouse at the auction house up in uh, on the upper east side and um so i couldn't get near the place but a couple of players had said yeah come by come by you know and, and i was like well i don't have any credentials to get in there they're, they're not letting press and they didn't want press there mm-hmm. and so the bouncer and the bouncer was like no I, I knew some of the owners at the auction house too but they were they were in the back room with the rangers they weren't coming out to the front to see who's coming in yeah so yeah. the bouncer was like no you're not getting in and i'm like oh, that's fine i understand you know and i'm walking trudging back to my car and here comes a limousine with a cup in the front seat and mark and his dad in the back seat and uh yeah so that was that was a pretty cool moment for me for sure are there any other i know there's probably many but if you think yeah. about vivid stories that come to your mind from from that whole time period you know what stands out to you the most yeah, I mean, from that year, and I, I didn't want to. I don't want to sound negative about that year at all because of obviously how it turned out. But there was so much chaos, and and I think chaos is a really uh, a big word through a lot of the chapters of this book because there's always was chaos around the Rangers, and and never more so than during that ninety three ninety four season with Keenan and, and Neil Smith fighting like dogs and cats. Uh, Keenan and pretty much every player not named Messier were fighting all the time. Uh, some guys wanted to fight him, literally fight him. And by the way, he's a big guy, Keenan. He doesn't look it, but he's a big man. Oh, really? I would have never thought that. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a pretty muscular guy. Um, but he's uh, – and he was great with us, terrific with us. But the chaos around that Devil series – you know, games four, five, and six was was nuts with what we, he nearly sabotaged that series when he's benched Leach and Messier and 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 then had the whole thing with the um, he didn't pull the goalie down two goals in game four, I think it was. He didn't pull Glenn Healy after he pulled Richter. Uh, so, so there was always something going on. And then in the finals, he's negotiating with other teams to become the coach of the following season with a five-year contract. So... It, it was I, I, one of the times I've seen Mike Richter in the last few years. We were talking about all that stuff, and he turns to me and he goes, "Carpy, how the bleep did we do that?" <laughs> <laughs> I said, "It's pretty amazing sometimes, but but you know they were the best team, but man, they had to overcome a lot." And uh, so I did. I I wrote a lot about this, the stories that that Keenan brought upon that team. And and the mess that it really was at times, and, and then he was gone a month later. So obviously, you know, it played out where there were a lot of issues, and, and it boiled yeah. to the, it, even though they won, it still yeah. kind of came to a head at the and end. Listen, and for, full credit to him. I mean, he got him across the finish line. Yeah, you know, it it didn't look like it was going to at times, and it looked like he was like I said, he was going to sabotage it at times. But he got him through, and and same thing with Neil Smith. You know, when the history books will show that in 83 years, Neil Smith is the only general manager to win the Stanley Cup for the New York Rangers. And Mike Keenan, same thing. Yeah, it really, it was fascinating for me to read all that stuff. And then what we see in all the years after is chasing it, chasing it, yeah, you know, making yeah. some kind of short-term moves that that a lot of them didn't pan out. Some of them did. Obviously, they have the great run in yeah. the 2010s era, the Lundquist era. And then you see them come out of that and go into the rebuild. And just as they were starting to come back up now is when, is when you kind of sailed off into the sunset. But I I do know that you at least watch some from afar, right? Oh yeah, for sure. I I watch almost every game. 
That's um, I I had a feeling based on the occasional text we get in that group text message. <laughs> sometimes sometimes the ten o'clock games test me. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, me too. Even though I'm, I'm at sure. a lot of them, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. But uh, yeah, I still I still follow them. I still have some opinions that I mostly keep to myself. Well, that's um, what I was going to say. Would kind of be a good kind of fun way to end this. I don't know how much yeah. how deep you want to get into it, but just. Where do you stand on, on the happenings of the team in these few seasons since you since you left the beat now that you're kind of watching from afar and, and you look at this team heading into the new season? They had that great run to the Eastern Conference final, but then last year fell flat. New coach comes in. A lot of the same core. A lot of guys are still here that I know you covered and you yeah. know well. So where do you stand on kind of the current state of the Rangers? Yeah, you know, I think I think the most unfortunate part of it is that when COVID hit, and the salary cap got flat, and it hurt a lot of teams. It certainly did. It hurt a lot of teams. But the Rangers at that point, uh, they had the kids. They had, you know, Lafreniere, they had Kako, they had Keandre Miller, they had Hito, uh, and they had Schneider coming, and and, they, and there were others that they thought were coming that never got here and never will make it in the NHL, unfortunately. But they were they needed to fill holes at that time, and they didn't have the money to do it. And when Jeff Gordon was fired and Chris Drury was hired. Their both of their hands were tied um, by this this flat cap, and you know it's not just the Rangers. It, it certainly has affected a ton of teams around the league. But when they signed Jacob Truba and they signed Chris Kreider to those big contracts, they were play, they were counting on this cap continuing to go up, especially with the new TV deals. And I think you know they've really been hamstrung by it. Although they're still, I, I think, a pretty good team. Um, and, and if, if the kids, if the young guys, those four young guys that I mentioned can continue on their trajectory, I still think they have a shot at this being a Stanley cup team at some point that said, you know, they're not as far along as they probably should have been before they blew up everything when Gorton and John Davidson were fired. And, uh, and I think that to get to that next level, they're going to need some calorie, some salary cap space, and uh, that may be coming next year. But we'll see. Well, they want to win this year, Carp. <laughs> I know, I know they do, and I know the owner does for sure. But yeah, yeah, uh, you know, and and that could still happen. I think they'll have a chance to be competitive in the playoffs. Um, they certainly, as you know, have a very good core. The question is. Uh, can that core play this system or can they play a system that's needed to play in the playoffs? And can, and then can the kids as you, as uh, you and everybody else have written the last two years, can those kids continue to make strides forward and become legit top six players? You know, I don't have the answer to that, but we'll see. Yeah. I think you you hit the nail on the head. Those are the two big questions for me is do those young guys step up and, and become whether it's role players or in some cases they need them to be more than that to kind of support yeah. that Panarin, Zabanajad, Kreider, Fox core, Igor core that they have right now. And yeah. what kind of effect does Laviolette have? I got to tell you the early returns, like just watching these practices and being around them. And I know it's early, so we're kind of still in the honeymoon stage, but yeah. I think they they are getting a jolt. At first, I was skeptical. I yeah. felt like it felt kind of stale. The guy's been with five other teams. He's been around so long. What really kind of newness is he going to bring? But I think the structure, the, the emphasis that he has on this team becoming a harder working team, playing the style that he believes yeah. is going to win in the playoffs, 
to me, early on, it looks like they're embracing that and watching the practices, the pace, the intensity, yeah. all that. It, it's definitely ramped up from what we saw with Gallant. So I, yeah. I do think the coaching thing has been a good thing for them so far. Yeah, I agree. And and you know, Gallant was Gallant was, you know, usually when you hire a coach, it's the opposite, right? You sometimes you have a, a hard coach and and you hire a player's coach to follow, et cetera. And I think that was what happened when they brought in Gallant. They needed a player's coach. But when that didn't work, then you get, then you have to go back to a guy who's a little harder. Now, I don't think Laviolette's an, an, an ass kicker, but he's he's certainly got his ideas, and he's certainly going to be strict when it comes to playing his way. And that was I think that was Gallant's shortcoming, was getting the team to play a system that works in the playoffs and making adjustments during those series. Um, I think I think Laviolette is both better at both of those things and gives them a chance this year. Yeah, only five games in, but early signs, I think, yeah. are, are encouraging on that front. We'll see how it plays out. Maybe we'll talk about it again down the line. But yeah. for now, I'll let you go. I know it's, it's probably about dinner time on the East Coast now. I don't want to keep you too late. Thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it. This is a fun conversation. We could have went way deeper. Do me a favor on the way out. I I believe it's called The History of the Blue Shirts. I should have the book in front of me. I'm being a, <laughs> a bad host right now. Yeah. Remind us of, of exactly where you yep. can get the book, when it comes sure. out, title, all that. It's called The Franchise New York Rangers. And it's a Triumph uh, publication. And you can get it anywhere you buy books. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Goodreads, or you can go directly to Triumph Books. It should be in stores by the end of this week, if not already. And uh, so any place you get books, you can you can find this one, and hopefully it'll be in the front of the store. And uh, who knows, maybe I'll get to some book signings too. But uh, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it, Van, and always good talking to you. Yeah, and I'm not just saying this because I love Carp. I have been loving reading this book. It's been really, really fascinating for me. And I think if you listen to it, if you if you're a Rangers fan, which I know most of you who listen to this are Rangers fans, you're really going to enjoy it. So, so thanks again, Carp. And we'll be sure to plug it a little bit more a- as we get into the coming weeks here. Thanks, Vinny. Keep in touch. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Carp as much as I did. I mentioned this at the top of the interview, but it bears repeating. I will forever be grateful to him for the way that he treated me, not only when I first started at the Journal News and I was covering local high school sports and he was covering the Rangers, or actually at the time he was a local columnist but had done the Rangers for many years and ended up back full-time on the Rangers beat shortly thereafter, but especially for the way that he treated me when I first came on the beat. He would have been justified, I think, in having some resentment, not necessarily toward me, but toward the company. And now I'm this guy who's in this role that he had loved for so, so many years and done so well for decades it wouldn't have shocked me had he not really wanted to help me out so much. And again, not me personally, but more not helping out the company, but instead did everything that he could to make sure that I had everything that I needed, that I was comfortable, whether it was navigating different arenas or figuring out procedures or dealing with different personalities on the beat, who to meet in the organization, all these different 
nuances and, and little things that you don't really learn until you've done them, especially in a grueling, demanding job like this. And he was absolutely a pleasure to be around. Really, it was just that first season, my first season on the beat. He was working for The Athletic that pre-COVID season, then the season abruptly got ended. After that, Carp covered the team for a little while longer, but with all the COVID restrictions, and then he ended up retiring, I believe, in 2021. So we really had only had that one full season where it was like no restrictions, full bore, your regular old beat reporting kind of a job. And that first year, he was just great with me, and I'll forever be grateful for that. And again, this is the guy that when it came to reading about the Rangers as a kid, I bar far read him more than anyone else. So a guy that I looked up to and then got to meet and get to know later on in life, a really down-to-earth guy, a really humble guy, a genuinely good guy. And I think that's why over the years, especially if you read the book, you'll see he has a lot of strong relationships with players and other people around the team. And I think it's because that humility comes through with him and people trust him and people like to have fun with him. He's definitely got a good sense of humor. Carp's writing style is very unique and it comes through in the book. Like you're going to get a lot of history if you read this book because there is everything that happened during his time on the beat, which again began with that 78-79 season when the Rangers memorably went to the cup final. But it's also filled with all kinds of little anecdotes and stuff that happened behind the scenes and really funny stories in a lot of cases. His voice really shines through and he dissects everything that's happened to this franchise, all the big trades, all the big draft picks, like all that stuff fascinates me. So you get a little bit of everything from the book. I'm less than 100 pages away from being done with it. I just finished the chapter that was all about the playoff drought. I believe it was seven or eight years. The Rangers went from the mid to late 90s to the mid 2000s where they didn't make the playoffs. And I mean, unpacking the way that they dismantled that team that won the cup in 94, it's kind of depressing. It's, there were just so many missteps and so many behind the scenes chaos and, and turmoil and bad decisions that were made where you wonder had that group had more of an opportunity to stay together, had a couple decisions been made differently Maybe they could have won multiple cups or at least been a more competitive team for a longer stretch of time, especially getting into all the drama that went down when Marc Messier left, I believe, in 97 to go play for Vancouver. Just all kinds of stuff. It's really, really fascinating to read this book. And again, if you're a Rangers fan, whether young, old, all this stuff is really interesting to me, and I'm sure you guys would find it interesting as well. So again... For the last time, I would encourage you to, to give it a chance and, and check out the book if you're into that sort of thing. If you like reading, which I do, and I hope you do too, because I hope beyond just listening to the podcast, you're also reading not only my stuff, but you know stuff like Carp's book as well. It's really a great history lesson for the last 40 plus years of the Rangers. All right, let's get into this week's set of questions. And we will begin with the first one, which comes from Matthew Wilford, who wrote, of the free agent signings this past offseason, who has had the biggest impact and who has had the most disappointing start? We'll start with the positives here, Matthew. For me, top of the list is Eric Gustafson. 
got the Broadway hat last night in Calgary, had a couple of points in that game, including the third and final goal. This is a guy who looks like an absolute bargain for the $825,000 contract that the Rangers signed him to. His familiarity with Peter Laviolette's system is apparent. He looks very, very comfortable within the framework of this system. And the skill is there. Definitely a point producer. I know we had talked previously about Keandre Miller getting that opportunity as the point man on the second power play unit. And in the long run, I'm still curious for him to get more of an opportunity than what we've seen so far this season. But there's no denying that that power play, I think, looks better with Gustafson there. So very comfortable handling the puck, facilitating, making plays. But also, he's been pretty solid defensively, and I think it's really stood out as far as him helping the Rangers with the breakout issues that they had last season. When it comes to clearing the puck out of their own zone, this guy is a skilled puck mover. And I think that was an asset that the Rangers really needed. That was an area of weakness for them last season. And I think he's helped them improve significantly in that area. So Gustafson to me, is probably the best option that I've seen in recent years for that left-handed spot on the bottom pair, which has been such a revolving door in the last, I don't know, however, really since Mark Stahl left, I guess, so probably the last about four years. And Gustafson certainly seems to be solidifying that role. So he would be the guy who comes to mind first. I also think Nick Benino has made a mostly positive impact This guy is just sacrificing himself every night, blocking tons of shots, had another five blocks, which was a team high in that win against the Flames on Tuesday. He's been really good on the faceoffs. He's been really good as a penalty killer. Not a lot of flash there and not a ton of speed there. This guy is not a burner. He's not a scorer. He's not going to do a lot of the highlight reel plays, but he is a lunch pail guy, a guy that I know LaViolette really likes and respects and another guy who knows his system really well. So I think as a fourth line center, he's pretty much done everything that you can ask for aside from maybe a garbage goal or two, but those should come in time. And Jonathan Quick. We had our concerns about him coming out of the preseason, but one start under his belt, and it went well for him. So, so far, so good as far as the backup goalie is concerned. On the other end of the spectrum, and I see a lot of your questions this week were about this guy, Blake Wheeler has obviously struggled through his first six games with the Rangers. When I was going through all the analytics and all the numbers for that story that I mentioned where I was dissecting each of the lines, even though that line overall has a lot of positive metrics, that line has still yet to produce a goal. And Wheeler, to me, just has not been a very noticeable presence. I don't think he's made any major mistakes that have hurt them. He looks like a bit of a lumbering presence out there. We've talked about the speed diminishing at this stage of his career, and he just doesn't seem to be super involved offensively. I can think of a couple decent shots on goal that he's had in these first six games. He did have one stretch pass that got Vincent Trocek going on a rush opportunity in Calgary that's popping into my head. But other than that, he, again, has not been the most noticeable guy and I think has had his struggles. And you just wonder, is he going to be able to really play at the pace, the fast pace that we know Laviolette wants these Rangers 
to play it. So he's a guy who has had his struggles early on in the season. I see some of these questions are talking about pulling the plug on him, demoting him, calling up Brendan Othman. It's way too early for that. We're only six games into the season. The Rangers signed this guy for a reason. They're certainly going to give him, I think, at least a month or two, probably even more than that, to find his footing and see if he can start to build a little momentum for himself. But I'd be lying to you if I said the early signs have not been great. And you also, I guess, could throw Tyler Pitlick into that boat as well. The guy's only played two games, so it's hard to really pass judgment about how effective he's been as a player on the ice. But he looks kind of like the odd man out of the lineup right now, which is a tough spot for him. And I wrote about this on Tuesday. Jimmy VC, I think, has put his head down, said all the right things, and done all the right things since he was a healthy scratch on opening night to earn back that role. This is a guy who I think deserves to be in the lineup based on what he's done since he came back to the Rangers a year ago. And I think if you look at some of the metrics for the fourth line, it seems like it's been more effective with him out there. And It's one of those things that I think metrics are helpful for because VC doesn't pop to you quite as much as Pitlick as far as his size, as far as his speed, as far as his physicality. But I've told you guys this before. I think Jimmy is one of the smartest players on this team. He's told me that he wants to coach later on in life, and he definitely, to me, has, I think, the right kind of hockey IQ and way that he thinks about the game. Even just talking to him yesterday about the situations where the Rangers use the one three one neutral zone trap and then situations where they're going to send two forwards up ahead instead and put a little more pressure on the forecheck in that way. He explained it in a, in a very simple way that really helped me kind of understand the, the different nuances within the system. So he's a guy that I think plays that way. You see it on the ice. He very rarely puts himself in bad position, very rarely makes a mistake. And I think that's been really valuable. And obviously he's become certainly one of the Rangers best defensive forwards. So VC has kind of forced his way back into the lineup. And the other guy who's really forced Pitlick out is Will Cooley. Him emerging the way that he did during training camp and seizing a spot in this lineup sort of made Pitlick the odd man out for now. So if we're talking about guys that have been a little disappointing, again, it's not so much because of his play, but it's just because he's sort of the odd man out of the lineup right now, so you don't feel like you're getting a whole lot out of him. So not so great early returns from Wheeler and Pitlick, but I think Gustafson, Benino, and Quick through this very early sample size of six games, you like what you see so far from those guys. All right, let's get to our next question, which comes from MFesta627, who wrote, the improvement in faceoffs has been remarkable until the Calgary game. Is there anything you see or hear about in practice that is contributing to this dramatic turnaround? It has been a dramatic turnaround. The Rangers were a 49% faceoff team last season. It's been an area of struggle for multiple years for this team. But coming into that Calgary game, they were second in the league at 55.7% win rate so far this season. That's a really, really good percentage. Now, they're not going to maintain that over the course of the season. At least I don't think so. And you saw them come back down to earth a little bit, as you touched on there, in that win against the Flames. They lost 60% of their faceoffs in that game. Now for the season, they're at 531 
that's still a very good number. You'll take 53% all day if you can get it. And I think there are a few reasons for that. Obviously, you got to credit the players first and foremost. Benito has had a really positive impact in that regard. He's at 58% so far this season. Trocek was their best face-off man last year, remains their best face-off man this year. He's at a team high 59.2% heading into that game in Edmonton. Barclay Gaudreau is up over 57%. Miga Zibanejad had a rough night on the face-off dot in Calgary, but prior to that, he was doing pretty well. He's still up above 51.5%. So overall, even Philip Heedle, who has been a sub-40% guy. Faceoffs have been a huge weakness in his game throughout his career. He's been better this season. He didn't have a great night in Calgary, but he's at about 47% right now. And if, if he's above 45, given his history, I think you'll absolutely take that. So everybody seems to be stepping up their game in that regard so far this season. Again, the big question is, can they sustain it? But I think Benino has certainly helped. And I think maybe even more so because of his impact on the overall group, is assistant coach Michael Pekka. He was brought in specifically, and Laviolette talked about this a little bit yesterday. They put together this coaching staff wanting a diverse mix of guys, a diverse mix of coaching skill sets that would help in certain areas that they identified. And Laviolette really values faceoffs. Pekka was also brought in because he was such a strong defensive forward. And I think they wanted a guy who was going to influence the entire forward group in that regard. So making them a better, more well-rounded 200-foot game kind of a forward group, that has been an impact that Pekka is having. But specifically face-offs, pretty much every practice and every morning skate, you see the centers with Pekka afterwards working on face-offs. It's been a point of emphasis since Laviolette got here with Pekka taking the lead in that regard. And Laviolette said on Tuesday that Pekka deserves some of the credit there for the early face-off success. So I think you're seeing this new sort of dynamic, much different looking coaching staff making an impact, and I think that has certainly had a positive effect on the face-off stuff so far this season. All right, let's get to our final question, which comes from Jess, who wrote, I need to know your nickname for the Bread Heedle Laugh Line. You know, I was thinking about this a little bit the other day, and... Things are popping into my head, but nothing has really formulated as like that eureka moment where I say, ah, that's what I'm going to use. One of the things that keeps bouncing around in my head is that these guys are from all corners of the world. You've got a Czech guy in Hedl. You've got a French-Canadian guy in Lafreniere, and you've got a Russian guy in Panarin. So I was thinking about something where they're sort of all around the world, but I, I need a kind of make that more concise and maybe figure out something there. You guys know I'm a foodie. So the idea of Phil Heedle, heat and bread, hot bread, something along those lines. But then how do you work Lafreniere in there? Panarin and Strom, we used to sometimes call them bread and butter. So is there a bread and butter reference in there? Or is that just kind of stealing from something that we used in the recent past? 
Lafreniere, especially Laugh, everybody calls him Laugh or Laffy. Seems like there's a lot of possibilities there, but how does that work with Heedle and Panarin? So I feel like there's something there. It just hasn't hit me to that, okay, that's got to be it. That's what we're going to call this line. And it's still pretty early. Maybe once they get past 10, 12 games together, we'll put a little more thought into it. And really all the lines, like the top line as well, in short, just to save characters on Twitter, I've said KZK for Kreider, Zabanajad, Kako, but there probably could be a better nickname there as well. So we'll see how these lines do. I want to see them have a little more sustained success before I devote too much energy to this. But again, if they continue, and so far all indications are Laviolette is going to let this lineup continue rolling the way that it is, then I think we do have to come up with something good. So I'll encourage you guys. I'll challenge you guys. If you've got any good ideas out there, send them over. And if I like it, I'll tweet it. I'll use it in my stories. I'll use it on the podcast. If, if, if we come up with a good one, I'll absolutely give you credit for it. And I feel like we probably have some pretty creative listeners out there. So I would love to hear the type of stuff that you guys come up with. With that, we are going to conclude this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. A lot of stuff going on on the road, so I'm going to try to keep you guys posted on everything I'm observing, all the moods and the scenes from the locker room. was really also very excited to talk about all the moods and scenes in the locker room that Rick Carpinello witnessed in his 43 years on the beat. I really hope you guys enjoyed that conversation, and we will be back next week. Got this road trip to finish up. Got a free night in Edmonton tonight, so I think... We are going, me and Molly Walker and Colin Stevenson, and I think maybe Arthur Staple as well, a few of the beat writers that we're traveling with right now. There's a really good Czech restaurant that we've been to a couple times in Edmonton, and they've got all kinds of exotic stuff, some some duck and some deer and some different stuff like that. So probably going to end up there tonight, maybe have a couple drinks. Definitely trying to get some sleep. I had an early flight to Edmonton this morning after covering a game last night in Calgary, so I'm tired. Might even sneak in a nap right now. I'm looking right at my hotel bed. It's looking pretty comfy, so that might be a little too much information for you guys. I'm sure you don't care too much about my nap schedule, but I will keep you posted on the more interesting stuff that happens from the road for sure, and I will be back with another podcast from hopefully a much warmer setting in New York next week. Until then, I love you all. Enjoy the hockey. We got a lot of hockey to go, but it's been fun and interesting and exciting so far. So hopefully more of that to come. Take care of yourselves, and I will talk to you again next week.